Thank you, Seth. Mark 14, 43 through 50 is where we're going to be this morning, continuing to walk through the entire book of Mark. This is what it says. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. This is the word of God. You can be seated. As you're being seated, would you bow with me? Father, thank you so much for the fact that you've given us your word, you have revealed yourself to man. We could not know you otherwise unless you revealed yourself to us, Lord, and you have most perfectly revealed yourself to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that we saw today, just now, an act of obedience to Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for salvation of souls, especially in my own family. So thankful for that. Now, Father, I pray, please continue to use your word to not only draw sinners to yourself. Yes, do that. Please save sinners this morning, but please also use it to continue to build up the saints. Lord, continue to build up your church. Lord Jesus, you said, I will build my church, and we're looking to you to do that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The text this morning, um, I've titled the sermon for it, Man's will and God's will. Man's will and God's will. Why did I title it that? All throughout Scripture, we find that mankind is given a will. He's given choice from the very beginning, even before he had a sin nature after the fall. Man in the garden was given a will, and we know mankind chooses and does what he wants to do. We do what we want to do. We always go with our greatest want. We also see that as we read that same scripture that tells us that man has a will, we see that the Lord uses those choices, free choices that man makes. He uses those to accomplish his perfect will throughout all history. When man does what he wants to do, he still accomplishes God's ultimate will. Perfect example of this one that we all know fairly well, I'm sure, is the example of Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember? The brothers were very jealous of Joseph. They sold him into slavery. He's sold to a man named Potiphar, and then he's even wronged once more by Potiphar's wife. She accuses him wrongly, and he's sent to jail. And even in jail, he's forgotten about for years. And then finally, he gets exalted to the place of vice president under Pharaoh, and he's able to save Egypt because of some dreams that he has. The Lord tells him what these dreams mean. Seven years of famine are, come, are coming, and they do. Brothers come to Egypt. Hey, we want some food too. Sell us some. 
And Joseph says, hey, I'm your brother. And they're shocked. And we, we recall, all of us, more than likely what Joseph said in Genesis 50, 20. You meant it for evil, what you did to me, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. So this is a per- that's a perfect example. Wicked men doing wicked things, exactly what they wanted to do. And it was fulfilling God's perfect plan. God was behind all of it, doing what he wanted to do. And in our text, we'll see that men are doing what they want to do, but it fulfills Scripture. Scripture that was prophesied hundreds of years before any of this took place. We know Judas was a a greedy man, and so he's just walking out in his greed, isn't he? We, We see this starting in verse 43. Let's go ahead and look there. Immediately, it says, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. That name, as we talked about in the past, is forever associated with this horrible betrayal. We know about Judas. We've already learned about him in the scriptures. One time we hear about Judas, he was really upset about something that Mary Magdalene was was graciously doing to Jesus. I'm sorry, this was not Mary Magdalene, Mary the, the sister of Martha, sister of Lazarus, that Mary. Lots of Marys in the Bible. Easy to get them confused, right? She comes in with this alabaster flask of pure nard, pours it on his head, pours it on his feet. He says, she's done a beautiful thing. She's anointed me for my burial. Judas looks at it and nudges his friends and says, why this waste? This could have been sold for this much money, 300 silver coins, and, and given to the poor. John, who wrote that, says, he did not say this because he was concerned about the poor, but instead... As the one in charge of the money bag, he would help himself to it. So we already know he was greedy. He was a thief. That's what was already within him. And so also, we know too, in John 13, 27, it tells us that Satan entered into Judas to betray him, to betray Jesus, rather, It tells us at the meal, at the Passover, Satan entered into Judas. And Judas gets up, and he goes, and he makes the deal to betray Jesus for silver coins. Remember that? Now, lest you think, lest you think that Satan entered in, and now Judas was just like this robot, and he was like, what am I doing? I don't want to do this. Where are my feet taking me? No. He was doing exactly what his evil heart wanted to do. He was actually doing What was already in his evil heart, the devil just amplified it. The devil just magnified it, aided him in doing it. So that's when we see Judas comes, one of the twelve, brings this crowd, swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. It's interesting because we read just at the beginning of this chapter. Same chapter. If you've got your Bible open to Mark 14, you can just go a little bit back and look at verses 10 and 11. Look at verses 10 and 11 in Mark 14. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And then it says this, And he sought an opportunity 
to betray him. He sought an opportunity. He was looking for an opportune time. You know what's really interesting about this? Satan was already within him working to carry out this evil plot. And so we see Judas mimicking Satan. In what way? Remember back when Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness? All those temptations that he went through. We get three of them in the scriptures. Only three are we given uh, a window into. But the Lord Jesus defeated the devil with all of them. With the word of God. He overcame all those temptations with the word of God. And then it actually says at the end of Luke 4 at the end of those temptations. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Isn't that interesting? The devil said, I'm going to wait for another opportune time. And then what do we see Judas here? And he sought an opportunity to betray him. He's acting just like the devil. He's acting just like the devil. The devil was looking for an opportune time to get at Jesus again, and Judas is looking for an opportune time to betray Jesus. Judas would not have said with his lips that he worshipped the devil. He probably didn't worship the devil. But I, want you, I do want you to know that we do become like the things that we worship. Those things that control us, those things that we want to be like. We say, ooh, I like that, I like him, I like her, I like whatever it is. We become like what we worship. That's why for Christians, someone might say about you, a follower of God, someone might say, oh, he's very godly, right? Why? Because there's something about him that's characteristic of the God he serves. We become like what we worship. And we see here what's what's moving Judas. Granted, it's selfishness. Where is that self-centered, that self-seeking coming from? It's coming from the devil, capitalizing on what's already in him. We already know he's selfish. The devil just usually capitalizes those things that are already true about our flesh. And so we see Judas acting just like the devil. And it's, of course, very sad because look what happens. Now, verse 44, the betrayer had given them a signal saying, the one I will kiss is the one sees him and lead him away under guard. One of the most affectionate actions was chosen for one of the worst betrayals. The Bible even tells us, greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, visitors, understand this. We see that as a cultural command. So, don't worry. We don't plan on kissing you before you leave. In every culture, there's some act that is appropriate for the culture that shows a great affection. Here, how do we do it? A handshake or a hug. That's how we do it in our culture, right? And their culture, Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss. And they still do that in the Middle East. They still do that. Very common. So isn't it interesting and very sad and very hypocritical? And it shows just how evil he was. I'm going to still pretend that I love you. He even says, Rabbi, great term of respect, and then kisses him. Look how, look how deep into his DNA the deception had become. He could still call him Rabbi. He could still kiss him. 
and act like everything's fine while stabbing him in the back. The son of man at that. One of the most affectionate actions was chosen for the worst betrayals. Verses 34, I mean 43 rather, through 45, deal with all, all deal with Judas' betrayal. Verses 46 and 47, which are next, deal with man's reactions. And then verses 48 through the end deal with Jesus' response. So if we're kind of watching a movie, there, there, there's three scenes in this part of our movie here. Judas' betrayal, then man's reaction, and then Jesus' response. That's, that's really the, the layout of this, as you've already seen as I was reading it. So then, Judas does what he does. Kisses him. Luke tells us something that Mark didn't. Mark is a much more concise gospel. It's only got 16 chapters. It's actually the shortest of all the gospels. It's written to Romans. They're very action-based people. Remember, they were taking over the world. They're really into action. And so Mark, in writing his gospel to them, hits the high points and moves moves the message along real quick. That's what they were used to. So, he doesn't include every single detail. Thank the Lord, we have four Gospels. Luke tells us something else that Jesus says here. He says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Would you, would you use your lips to honor me while your heart is far from me? And we look at that and we say, oh, Judas, he's a bad guy. Ooh, how evil, wicked. Ooh, let's all hate his guts together, right? We're all in agreement. We hate Judas. And let's all vote. Yes, we all hate Judas. He's bad. He's the villain. (sighs) Be careful. We, you, sometimes also honor Jesus with your lips while betraying him with your underlying actions, don't you? I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty of that, especially before I was a Christian. I would have told you, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, all day, all day long. But my life showed something very different. We all want Jesus' blessing, don't we? Are you living a life that Jesus can bless? Just be honest with yourself, are you? My point in asking you that is to not stand up here and beat you up, to slug you and say, do better, you sinner. My point is to say this. Jesus forgives sinners, and you must know that you are without hope if you're going to get into the club. You have to come repentant. You don't come fixed. He doesn't want you fixed, because guess what? You can't fix yourself. You're only broken, and it's until you know that you're broken that he can start fixing you, because otherwise you'll try to fix yourself, and that's not your job. Jesus is the one who forgives sinners. So you must be a sinner to come to Christ. So if you say, yes, Cohen, I honored Jesus with my lips, but yes, you're, uh, you got me. You nailed me. I am a hypocrite. I just, I know the real me. Congratulations. You are so close right now then. You're so close. Keep listening. Is it with a kiss that you would betray the Son of Man? And then in verses 46 and 47, we get man's reactions. What, what are the people around doing now? Well, what are they going to do to all this? Look at verse 46. And they laid hands on him to seize him. 
who was the they here. Well, these are the people, that, the crowd that comes with swords and clubs that the, the um, chief priests and the scribes and the elders had, had gathered together. If you're wondering who the chief priests, scribes, and elders are, these are the religious elite of that day. These are the religious important people of that day. But they do not see Jesus for who he is. This is why they've come after him like this. So they laid hands on him to seize him, but, verse 47, there's our contrast word, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We don't have to guess who this was. The book of John tells us this was Peter. Far be it from Peter to be impulsive, right? Far be it from Peter to do something or say something without thinking first. That's not like Peter. I heard a pastor once say, he cut off his ear because he was aiming for his head, is what he said. He's, we get two extremes here in verses 46 and 47. Look at this. His enemies thought they could hinder him. His enemies actually thought, we're going to arrest him, and we're going to, hopefully, try him and, and, and kill him. And in verse 47, his friends thought they could help him. His enemies thought they could hinder him, and his friends thought they could help him. But nothing, not even one thing, is going to happen to Jesus except exactly what the Father wills. His enemies can't stop him. His friends can't help him as they thought. All, they would act, all that would actually happen is the Father's four ordained plans to come to pass. And that's how it always is, church. Always. God's will is going to be accomplished. Everything is as God wills it. His plan cannot and will not be thwarted, stopped, or changed. And aren't you glad? Imagine if it was the opposite. Imagine if God could be stopped if God could be changed in some way, imagine if God was up in heaven saying, oh, darn it, my plans were foiled again. Do you want to serve a God like that? I don't. Thank the Lord we don't have to because that's not the God of the Bible. His plan cannot and will not be thwarted, not by the strongest man or the vilest demon. Even the crucifixion itself, which was carried out by a lot of different people working together, right? We have Pontius Pilate, we have King Herod, we have Gentiles, we have Jews. Pontius Pilate receives Jesus that day and he says, hey, what's going on here? And they say, oh, he's done this, he's caused an uproar in the temple market. All this stuff, he's, he started in Galilee and now he's come here. Oh, he says, oh, is this man a Galilean? In that case, send him to Herod. Herod gets him and Herod's just like, oh, I've heard about you. I've heard a lot about you. Oh, you're some king, right? Ah, put a put a purple robe on him, and then mark him well, and they hit him. Send him, back to, send him back to Pontius Pilate. He goes back to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate says, I see no reason to, to condemn this man. No reason at all. And they say, crucify him, crucify him. And he's like, ooh, what am I going to do here to appease the crowd? Hey, 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 at this festival, at this time, it's a customary for me to release one person to you. Therefore, I will release this man back to you. And they say, hey, give us Barabbas. And he's like, oh, now what do I do? And he says, uh, flog him. They flog him. He says, I see no reason to condemn him. They say, crucify him, crucify him. And it says, in order to appease the crowd, he had him 
crucified. The Romans carried it out. The Jews saw to it that it was going to happen. But look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. I've got this verse for you behind me here. Look at this. Part of a prayer. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All those wicked men were doing exactly what they wanted to do. They were carrying out the vileness of their heart. And what did they do? Perfectly fulfilled the Father's predestined plan. That's awesome. That's our God. His plans will be accomplished. Even Jesus himself had the power, this is, had the power and ability to stop everything that was happening there that day, and he didn't do it. We get more. We get more of what happened there. Matthew tells us some more, of, some more conversation that was had between verses 47 and 48. There was a few different things that were said between verses 47 and 48. Jesus says to them in Matthew 26, verses 52 through 54, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot... Uh, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled, he says. He says, you don't need to do what you're doing. If you're trying to rescue me, thank you very much, but you need to understand this. I could actually call down 12 legions of angels. You say, how many is a legion, Cohen? We don't, we don't really speak in those terms, do we? That was a military term for a group of men. And doing my research for this, what I saw was that in the B.C. years, a Roman legion was, could be somewhere around 5,000 men. And then more towards the A.D. years, sometimes a legion was around 1,000 men. So a legion changed throughout the span of time. Either way, whether it's closer to 60,000 angels or 12,000 angels, last I checked, it only took one to roll that massive stone away from the tomb. So, 60,000, 12,000, it makes no difference. What's Jesus saying? In other words, don't you understand that I could prevent this from happening if I wanted to? There was something more important behind all of this that had to take place. What was it? The ultimate plan of the Father to redeem his people as Jesus Christ bore the sins of many, taking upon himself the wrath of God, not that he deserved, but that sinners deserved. A punishment we deserve. And he shed his blood, and he died, and he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. That was the ultimate plan of the Father to redeem a people for himself through the death of his son, Jesus. Yes, it seemed as though evil was winning, but it was perfectly fulfilling 
the Father's foreordained plan. Not that it was just foreordained, but that he was even forerecorded. It was even recorded beforehand. Jesus says, how can the scriptures be fulfilled unless this happens? Jesus did do something at that moment, though. No, he didn't call down legions of angels and try to undo what was being done, but he did undo something that had just been done. We learn from Luke twenty-two fifty-one. Jesus says, no more of this, and he touched the ear of the servant's high priest and healed him, is what Luke twenty-two fifty-one tells us. He didn't prevent God's will from happening, God's ultimate plan from happening. He didn't undo that, but he did undo something, the cutting off of a man's ear. You can call this like a mini parable that day in the garden. Why do I think it's a mini parable? Well, acting impulsively, Peter reverts back to his fleshly, sinful ways of trying to just rough things through. I'm going to just, we're going to make this happen. And you're not going to do this. Remember, Peter's just like that. Even Jesus told him, before the rooster crows this day, you're going to deny that you know me three times. And was Peter's response humble? Oh, Lord, I totally believe you. I should pray that I don't do this. No, Peter said, not so, Lord. That'll never happen to me. Even if I, even if I have to die with you, I'll do it. Peter's very extreme, see? He's very like, all the way to death. You can count on me. And so... He was extreme again, and he hurt this man. Was he justified in hurting the man? Of course not. But Jesus heals the hurt that was done. He repairs the damage that was done by Peter's sin. Let's not forget where all this is going down. It's, it's, it's happening in a garden also, Garden of Gethsemane, where, like we learned last week, where the first sin happened in the Garden of Eden. This was an act of healing. This was actually the the last act of healing recorded in the scriptures before Jesus is crucified. Before his death, burial, and resurrection. This is his last miracle before he would bear the wrath of Almighty God for the sins of man upon himself. Thus, making the way for sinners to be reconciled to God. Praise God for that. And essentially, repairing the damage that was done by sin. So this is like a mini parable. In healing the servant's ear, we're afforded one last act that points to what Jesus will ultimately accomplish. He's going to ultimately accomplish this healing in the heart of man. He's going to fix what sin damaged. Because sin separated you from God. Sin cut you off from God and he will repair the damage done by sin in the heart of man and reconcile God to himself this last miracle is pretty cool I think it's like a, a mini parable it's like in the garden I'm gonna man acted impulsively and wrongly and sinned and I'm going to heal it up and now I'm gonna go to the cross and there's a little sermon in this ear business going on so look at verse 48 and 49 then. Now we get what I said earlier was going to be Jesus' response to all this. Remember, man reacted, and now Jesus is going is to respond. 
in verses 48, 49. Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you've not seized me there. But then he says what? But let the scriptures be fulfilled. They're attempting to arrest Jesus the way they would arrest a common robber. He says, have you come out against me like you would come out against a robber? And then we know they will also punish him the way they would punish a robber. Jesus was crucified between two what? Thieves, right? Between two robbers. So he says, have you come to arrest me like a robber? And then they crucify him with robbers, with thieves. He was arrested like a common thief. He was crucified like a common thief. But he was the most uncommon man. He's the unique, holy, one-of-a-kind son of God doing the work that only he can do because only a sinless man can atone for sinful men. And we're all born into sin, born into it. No one has to teach us how to be selfish or greedy or prideful, egotistical. No one has to teach you that. No one had to teach me that. Jesus is doing the work that only he can do, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, that the foreordained will of God might come to pass. Jesus would succumb to this. Have you come out to arrest me like a robber and crucify me like a robber? But let the scriptures be fulfilled, he says. Let's let this take place. Why? Because there's salvation in no one else. For there's no, under, there's no other name given under heaven, given to men, by which we may be saved except the name Jesus Christ. This is the only way it could happen. There's one way to be saved. I'm in the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. There was some other way for us to be saved. Then why did Jesus even come, right? Is Jesus plan B? What an insult. What an insult. Will there be anyone in heaven, anyone in heaven that says, oh, bless your heart, you needed Jesus? Hmm. Well, you know, Jesus is a good plan too. I'm up here though. Because I gave a million dollars to St. Jude. I'm up here because I'm like Mother Teresa part two. You poor soul, you needed Jesus. But hey, you know, but we're both here and let's just celebrate. No, no, <laughs> no one gets to heaven any other way except through Jesus Christ. This section sort of ends on a sad note, doesn't it? I mean, it's, and they all left him and fled, it says. They all ran away. Here's Peter, like, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? I'm going to get you, sucker. Whoa, oh, man, I almost got his head, and he cuts off his ear. Jesus heals him. He says, no more of this. They arrest Jesus, and everybody says, let's leave. Look what they're doing to the master. What, what, what are they going to do to us? If they can handcuff Jesus, what does that mean for us? It does seem sad that Jesus was abandoned by all of his followers at that moment. But you know what this does, though? It just further authenticates Jesus' words. Because Jesus, 
As I already said, as you might recall, as we just saw just a few weeks ago, in verse 27 of the same chapter, same chapter, verse 27, you will all fall away, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Jesus wasn't surprised by this. Jesus wasn't handcuffed saying, hey, where are you guys going? Break me free. No, he'd already prophesied this. He already knew this was going to happen. All this does is make us look at Jesus and say, just one more thing to prove his authenticity, that he is the all-knowing son of God. This sad abandoning was just the beginning, however, of what would ultimately lead to, of course, the death of Christ. That's where the dominoes started to fall. Actually, the dominoes already started to fall the night before, the day before. But this is when he would then be led away and everything would start to lead to his persecution. But for those of us who know the Lord Jesus by faith, we know that this abandonment ultimately leads to a regathering. Yes, they abandoned him. But what's going to happen as a result of this abandonment ultimately is this regathering. What kind of regathering are we talking about? Like here, here at church on Sunday? Well, that's a picture. It's just the very start of it. The Lord Jesus will gather his elect before his throne in heaven. He will raise everyone who's been laid to rest, all his people, when he comes again. And then in heaven, we get this picture all those who've repented of their sins and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because that's how we get saved. Two sides of the same coin. Repentance, turning away from your sins, admitting, knowing that you are a sinner. You deserve nothing from God except his punishment. The other side of the coin is faith. Faith and trust in what he did for you. Yes, I know that I cannot save myself. I know that I only deserve your wrath, but I'm gonna put my faith and trust in the one who's already taken your wrath. He's already absorbed it all so that if I put my faith and trust in him, I get what's been placed into his account. This righteousness that he has is placed in my account. My sins, which I've earned, placed in his account. And that's what he was punished for. Not for his own sins. Was Jesus punished for his own sins? No. But for all those who would ever believe. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. And because he did, he lives, like we sang about, and there will be this regathering. So let me end with this beautiful, beautiful picture from Revelation 7, 9 through 12. Revelation 7, 9 through 12 is beautiful. You want to see what the regathering looks like? After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Where were they from? From every nation, from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. What were they wearing? Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. What were they saying? And they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Those of you who attend here regularly, you know that verse, don't you? This is the will of God 
This is a glimpse into heaven of what will happen. What is happening? This is God's will that cannot be thwarted by man. Judas posed no threat that day. He was only fulfilling what had been foreordained about him. Even the devil posed no threat that day. Why? He was working perfectly into what God had already foreordained. The men who came to arrest Jesus, again, did exactly what their sinful hearts wanted to do and perfectly fulfilled God's plan. Peter even, bless him, he just provided us a a mini parable that day along with the servants, along with the servant of the high priest. And all this perfectly fulfilled the will of God. And guess what? You can be wrapped up into that perfect plan. You can be. Jesus, right now, is calling to you and saying, this is the truth. Believe it. Believe it. You can be saved. You can be a part of that number. You can be a part of that number. Anyone can be included in that number who repents and puts their faith and trust in Jesus. It's inclusive in that way, but the way is exclusive. There's only one way to be saved, through Jesus Christ and what he did. Let's pray. Father, we're very grateful for the fact that your perfect will was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. We're so grateful for him. Lord, thank you again for the baptism that we saw of men, an outward expression of an inward reality. We've died to our old self. We've been buried and raised up to newness of life in Christ. Lord, as we sing now, of course, I pray, prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper where we remember again exactly what you did for us. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your son's perfect name. Amen.